Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Uh, we hope if you're out there driving, you are safe as you drive into this Father's Day weekend. Jeff, happy Father's Day almost. Uh, happy Father's celebrate. Day to you as well. Um, to everybody listening, I apologize for the music that was playing. <laughs> playing before the show was that Lawrence Welk what I mean what was that I don't know they didn't ask me what I wanted to play <laughs> we, so. we may have we may have to go back to having music at the beginning of our show because if that's what people are going to hear is that how I'm going to be able to get <laughs> an song back on the show <laughs> for our you, listeners you, you just you can't have, have that music on song. But Jeff won't approve something new with me, so we don't now. <laughs> so, all right, so it's Father's Day weekend. I started early with my son last week. I took my older son to the Trenton Thunder game. I'll, I'll be with my boys this weekend uh, as we wait for Hurley Haywood to join us to talk some racing. And uh, You mean the Trenton Thunder that should be the Yankees affiliate but somehow is no longer? Yes, it was still a blast. I don't care who they're playing for or with. I had a ton of fun with my son there. I told you I kind of ruined it. Um, like every, he now thinks that he's going to be able to fist bump Bryce Harper while he's waiting on deck because we were like ended up down behind home plate as he's fist bumping batters before they go up to hit. So he thinks that's going to happen at every game now. I will start saving bail money. So when we try <laughs> to go down to the field, we'll, we'll get you. We'll get. I was going to ask, like, what's your advice? Because you used to take your son to the <laughs> game. Advice for what? You used to take your son to the games a lot, and and you guys would get balls in fact no no not, not us guys uh, i never went down uh, he, if he wanted to go down he was welcome to go down when he was little i didn't go down uh, that's not it's not my thing but he he loved it and you know it's funny with this father's day stuff coming up uh, the first time that somebody gave him a ball was carlos carrasco when he was five years old at, at the same stadium you were at and now my son is taking me to the mets game on sunday for father's day and pitching 16 years later is Carlos Carrasco. That's so uh, cool. You told me yeah. that. And we hadn't planned to really necessarily talk about this. And I was like, that is so cool. Like talk about coming full circle. So my question is, how do I manage expectations? Because Alex got good. You at don't. You, you have two kids now. You should yeah. know at this point as part of parenthood that you cannot do that. There is no managing expectations. Things will always happen. They will always go as unexpected and you will always disappoint. That's it. That's your choice. <laughs> well, way to set up parenting for me. Thanks, man. <laughs> Look I, I, don't, I, I don't want to set the bar up too high. I can tell you parenting yesterday, by yesterday it, it, my, my kid was talking to me about the winter classic that I took him to in Philadelphia. And he was, which I totally forgot. You would think that what he would remember is that his dad took him to the winter classic and the freezing cold and all of that stuff. What he remembers, at least the thing that he regaled me with was that he, re he remembers that I got him the ticket a couple of days beforehand. I had bought them a year before and not told him, gave him the yep, ticket totally. along with a box with a Jersey in it. And it was Martin Biron. And I guess Martin Biron had just been traded. <laughs> oh, so that's what your son remembers. Let's exactly. leave, let's leave the Father's Day conversation there. We'll get back to in a minute. Let's welcome back on the show racing great motorsports hall of famer Hurley Haywood. Hurley, so good to get some more time with you today. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. We're so we, getting we dried out here in Florida. Yeah, so we just went through weather. some crazy rain here. Hope you're safe over there. 
so yeah, so are. Hurley, it just so happens by coincidence that right now I believe the 24 hours of Le Mans is going on. Do you still watch that race intently? And, and what are your as somebody who has gone through it and been successful in it? What are what are your feelings as you do watch it or or you do follow it? Well, uh, first you're a week late, so that was last weekend. Oh, we'll get um, the timing right eventually. Sorry about that. <laughs> but Jeff can't tell I time. Did, just so you know, Google said June 15th and 16th. Google lied to Jeff. <laughs> yeah, no, it was last week. And I was out in, in LA at the PEC out there, the Porsche Experience Center, doing an event for the both the 75th anniversary of Porsche and Le Mans. And it was kind of gruesome to watch, but I'm sure they learned a lot. But oh, it's, cool. you know... When you're when you're watching something like that and you've been participating in that event, you know how many bad things can can happen, and that was just a, a a nightmare of really bad situations that they got themselves into and they just uh, couldn't recover. Talk to us about. You said you went back and you were with Porsche. You started. You you raced your first Porsche in 1969 before you were drafted. You stayed with Porsche and, and raced Porsches through your career. What has it been about for you with your relationship with Porsche that has been so special? That that's a simple answer. Um, if you want to win races on a consistent basis, you better be driving a Porsche. You know, Porsches are so reliable. They're so well engineered. Um, you know, they if you look at the success of Porsche over the last fifty years, there's been ups and downs. Right now they're kind of had a, a down moment, but they'll recover and they'll be back in the winter circle on a consistent basis. They were, they won one race this year in uh Long Beach. So the capabilities are in the car, but they just have to get you know iron out some problems that they're having yeah just just to clarify for everybody out there i had the wrong year june 15th and 16th next year everybody be ready because that's when the 24 hours of long says (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that early okay you you recovered there we go (laughs) barely um so so hurley what exactly brought you to racing i mean for for a lot of people you know especially as kids we we love the idea of driving fast, but for most of us, we are scared to death of driving over 70 miles an hour. Well, you know, I was born in, right in the city of Chicago, right downtown. And um, luckily we had a bunch of farms out west of the city and uh, the main farm that my grandmother lived on enabled us to for me to start driving a full-size car when I was 12 years old. Um, Not with my parents' permission. Our farm foreman made some special (laughs) blocks on the pedals, and away I went. And so I I loved driving. I just, it was intoxicating, really. And um, I didn't know what the terminology for, for, you know, understeer was, but I knew if I went into a corner too fast, I wasn't going to get the car to, to turn and crash into the woods. So it was, you know, and, and I had an opportunity to drive on all kinds of roads from pavement to dirt to gravel and to no roads. So by the time I got my license at 16, I was pretty, you know, pretty good driver. The racing part of it never really came into effect until I went down to college in Florida. I had a really fast Corvette. 
and I used to race that in um, the local autocrosses. And one weekend I met Peter Gregg, and as they say, the rest is history. He he saw some some talent, and uh, he helped me order my first race car. I I made a really as a business administration major in college, and I made a really great um, proposal to my father. And he was so impressed with the proposal that he said, okay, I'll help you uh, for two years. And after two years are up, you have to either stop racing or continue. You can't, and I'm not going to give you any more money, but you have to continue on and you can't go down a level. You have to remain at the, at the same level or higher. So, it all kind of worked out, you know. It's it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time for so many things in life. So, so the moral of the story for me is that I should have gotten a Corvette when I was a kid, as opposed to the Mercury Monarch that I got. <laughs> that would have helped. Would have I, helped. I still don't think I still don't think you'd have been comfortable at that speed. You know, you, you said that I saw a quote that fifty-two years ago you started racing. You said, "To be truthful, I think endurance racing chose me." We, we talk all this time uh, regularly on the show about team sports and people often think of racing as just the driver in the car. Can you talk about the team aspect of endurance racing? And racing in general. Uh, I mean, that that's such an important uh, part of the overall success of a team. And the team is really a team. It's you have a driver. The driver is the one that usually gets all the accolades and, and pats on the back, but it's the crew that stands behind him that really makes it makes it happen. If you have a crew that's not doing their homework and not, you know, getting the car set up, then the driver just is not going to go anywhere. So you have to have all those things lined up working perfectly for the driver to be successful. And I've been really lucky in my whole entire career to have a great team behind me. Uh, Brumos was basically the main team behind me for all these years. They've always been there. I've driven for other teams, but I always, you know, my, my home was at Brumos. I was, you know, part of the dealership network and, and part of the management team there. And, and it, it all kind of just worked together and, and made, you know, ra- you, at some point you're going to have to race for, or you're going to have to retire from racing. And I was lucky enough to build that bridge that when I did finally stop racing, um, I transferred for it over to the business side of the of the equation and that's you know worked out well for me you know your your story and 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 your route to being a successful uh driver took a took a turn a detour by going having to go to vietnam uh you you, you've told the story and we've read your book about uh about how uh you had your commanding officer actually at one of your races can you tell us that story well, you know, the, the 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 Vietnam experience was something that I think really helped me um, have the discipline that I needed to have when I came back and went racing with full time with Peter Gregg. And Peter was also a a, a a a naval officer, and he understood the importance of details of of doing your homework and being prepared for for the onslaught. And that's what the military taught me, how to t- take command, how to obey orders, how to be timely and how to, you know, listen to your orders and, and fulfill them. As far as, you know, 
the army went when I came back to the states. Um, I was rotating out of the military in Fort Lee, Virginia, and uh, I happened to get a weekend off, and the weekend coincided with the race that they had at VIR, Virginia International Raceway, which Peter and I had discussed in doing. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm cleared to go. So I went down to the race, won the race, was in the, news, the base newspaper the next day, and the commanding officer was a big racing fan and he was actually at the race watched the race he had you know no idea that i was a soldier in, at his base the next day i got a, a, a command to go see the the commanding officer i said oh god i'm i'm in trouble now but he said you know i watched you and and we've got to you know get you out of the military we'll, we'll we won't stand in your way and and uh you know away i went Never look back. And the, the success that you end up having, I mean, winning Le Mans, winning 24 hours at Daytona, racing in the Indy 500. I, I know you couldn't have ever anticipated it, but the career after you had there, you know, you get to retire in 2012 and, and you move into this position in charge of driver development. Can you talk about how different that perspective was getting to be with the fans, but actually getting to work with the younger drivers and pass on what you had learned so many years in the car. Yeah, that's an important equation because you're going to have to, any manufacturer is going to have to rely on the younger generation coming up. And that's what's happening now. You know, you, there's a lot of new faces in racing, very, very talented guys, but you have to, sort of tame your enthusiasm to work to your benefit, not to your uh, disadvantage. And if you, you know, don't have the right frame of mind on how you evaluate something, you know, I've always said that racing is a lot like chess. You have to really plan your moves. So the move you're making at the moment might not make any sense to somebody, but down the line, it's, it suddenly makes sense just the same as, as playing chess. So you have to think and, and the guys that have the ability to think and to adapt to all the changes that are going on, you know, you're given the car as perfect as humanly possible at the beginning of the race, but the minute it starts to roll, it goes, its performance goes downhill and you have to adapt to it. You have so many different track conditions, different drivers, you know, a 24 hour race, you've got, you know, probably 50 cars. Each car has a minimum of three drivers. So you got a lot of a lot of guys that you don't have any idea what their driving is like. So it's it's how you look at a situation and evaluate uh, very quickly the successes of uh, the uh, percentage of of uh, probability of getting by that car without damaging your car. So you go from mentoring drivers to, in 2018, taking a more even public position with the release of your autobiography, Hurley, from the beginning. And, you know, Jeff and I were joking with you earlier about the fear we would have of driving over 70 miles an hour. You didn't mind driving 200 miles an hour. You were more concerned of being found out that you were living as a gay man. What would your sponsors do? What would your fans do? You were sponsored by Penthouse. Can you talk to us about the challenge that you had trying to race while also keep this secret that you were so concerned might cost you? 
Yeah, it was not something that was was easy to do. Um, I was very mindful of separating my personal life from my business life. A lot of people in the racing industry knew what my story was, but as long as I could keep my foot down longer than the guy next door to me, nobody really said too much. And I was, you know, outside of the race car, I was a very decent person. People, you know, like being around me. So I never really had a big problem with uh, people finding out that I was gay. I mean, you know, I could count on one hand the number of, of, uh, you know, people that had a problem with that. But the thing that sort of moved me to make it more public was that was in the book and in the documentary about the guy that came to my office. And, you know, he got about halfway through the interview, he kind of stopped dead and said, I need your advice on something. He said, every morning I wake up and I think I want to commit suicide. Nobody understands me. I can't. You know, I can't talk to anybody. I'm gay, and I just don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. And I said, let's let's slow down and let's talk about this. Uh, I gave him a couple, you know, people and institutions to talk to, and then I never heard from him. He left my office with a really good attitude, and he um, went off, and I never heard from him again. And then about two years later, I get a call, which turns out to be his mother. And I go, oh, God, you know, she's going to tell me, you know, he's committed suicide or something. But she said, whatever you told my son saved his life. And, you know, that was kind of a, a big wake up call for me that I said, you know, if if I have if my voice is strong enough to save a life, one life, maybe I could save two lives or 100 lives. And so you've got to talk about these things. And sometimes, you know, kids are just overwhelmed with so much going on in the world today that they need, you know, positive things to look at, positive things to say, well, maybe if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And so I I think and, and as far as, you know, people not understanding or, or losing fans by that, I think really that it it was an accelerator. I think so many people came up to me and said, you know, you were very brave to do that. I really, I, I've always loved you as, as a driver. Now I love you as a person. And so that's, you know, that's something positive. Yeah. And, and the positivity continues even to this day, not just with you being an example there, but also giving back through the event. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on is that you're going to be at an event next weekend uh, that Coach Vermeil is also hosting, the Concours de Elegance. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that event and, and what that means to you to be able to participate to help uh, youth who are going through struggles as, as far as uh, illnesses? Well, th- you know, this is going to be the sixth time um, at the Philadelphia concourse have been uh, held at the Simeon and Fred Simeon was a huge supporter. Um, and his museum is really something very special. Even if you don't like cars, people should go to there, go there and look at the history of really cars of automobiles 
from, I think Fred's got cars that were built in the late 1800s all the way to current cars. And when it, when a student or a person can look at that and say, you know, wow, that that's that's really something. And that I think is really a cool deal. You know, the um, we've got uh, Preston Kelly, who's a very um, a stout and well-known journalist. Uh, there's Woody Woodward, who was the crew chief for Roger Penske when I was racing in the Can-Am in 1973. And Woody is a great guy, understands that whole uh, job of, of uh, being a, the crew chief and being the one that's in charge of the cars that Mark Donahue was driving. And Mark kind of felt sympathy for me and, and helped me get my head around driving a 917 against the world's best drivers. So that's going to be interesting to listen to him on the on the panel. And then, of course, Jack Atkinson uh, is going to be there. Uh, Alan Springer and myself are on a video thing. I'm not sure, quite sure if Jack's going to be on the video or there in person, but he's a really cool guy to to get to know and to understand. He is a real uh, an engineer and somebody that really understands the dynamics that are going on in a car. And of course, I was at this program out in L.A. with Alan Springer, and Alan Springer really is the glue that held everything together for the, the Porsche participants from the early, from the like the mid '70s all the way to current. He's very knowledgeable. He understands how to deal with sanctioning bodies, which is a very important aspect, and he has a real strong link to the fact to the factory. So if he tells the Porsche factory something that they should do. They listen very closely to that, so that's a huge asset for them. I think he's going to. I think that panel of of discussion is going to be something that's really going to be special. Well, we can't wait to see the success that the event has again this year, and uh, we hope that you continue to have success where people help you realize the difference you're making for them. Uh, thank you so much for giving us the time to talk about it all. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. You want to talk about? somebody who's seen something 50 years in racing, the way the sport changed and then, you know, keeping the secret and then coming out and now having kind of come out the other side, having worried that it would be a, a detraction from what he does. And instead now he's larger than he's ever been because he's got this whole other segment that can now relate to him. You're I mean, I think, I think we want, we want to be able to, t there's another topic that this leads into, but before we get to that, like if for people who haven't seen uh, the Le Mans and you sit there and think, oh, how, you know, what's the big deal? It's an endurance race. And, and I don't know many people that would have the, the mental acuity to be able to drive in a car at that speed for that period of time. And yes, you do get out and other people get in, but it, it's ours and, and it is, an endurance test like no other. It is physically hard to to actually drive a car, and it is mentally hard to do what they're doing. Um, it, it's just so impressive, and you really should see Ford versus Ferrari if you've never never seen it. It actually is a, a really good movie and goes through that whole thing. But um, you know, we, we're talking about, and it is, I believe it still is Pride Month, and, and it, this soccer. I wanted to use this as a lead into a dis just a quick discussion on this soccer game that I didn't watch but but read about the next day you said you watched it yes I I was stunned perplexed that, that this keeps happening let's tell our what? listeners 
what Go happened. ahead. Why don't you do that? So the U.S. men's national team played Mexico last evening. Uh, the game was not in another country. The game was in Vegas. And the U.S. team beat Mexico bad all game long. I mean, they won 3 nothing. Uh, it got really ugly at the end, both Mexico's play and, and you know the U.S.'s response. There were four red cards. It was nine on nine at the end. Okay, don't worry about that. that, that, that end, but yeah. at the end, the fans once again started with their homophobic anti-gay chant, which soccer says they want to get out of the game, but finding it and stopping the game early will not make that happen. You need to take away wins or their ability to play. No, no, no. That's not what you should take away. What, what you should do, we have a World Cup coming up in a couple of years that is supposed to be all of North America. What we need to do is we need to say that the FIFA needs to have the courage to actually suspend or say to Mexico, you are no longer a co-host of this upcoming World Cup. It really is that simple. This is not, this happens from, for we keep hearing about this in Mexico, match after match after match. And for some reason, they don't stop this in the stadiums down there. And now you're telling me that the teams themselves, that the players on the teams are either egging this on or participating in it. And, if, and so you now have a direct line to Team Mexico. Well, and, you know, in fairness of the situation, it's actually larger than that because... In Europe, you see racist chants that go out. There are, there are larger issues in terms of the behavior of fans and players within these leagues and how they're acting. And I don't know. Soccer can say they're serious all they want, but putting the players in that situation where things are done thrown on the field and they, they can't actually play the end of the game. They stopped the game early. They gave them warnings. You know, you could see Matt Turner, the goalie, throwing his arm up in the air, saying, like, what are you going to do to the ref? They, they stopped it once. Then they ended it early. I don't even know why they put the extra time on. The U.S. was already up 3 nothing, and it was just working to, you know, trying to resolve the situation. But I don't it's see. It's not you, okay. The, the, I don't see you have a resolution if the team is still on the field. Well, I, I just, what would be wrong with FIFA actually taking a, a position on this to the point that's saying that's it? You're done. Money. That's why FIFA doesn't because they don't. Are want to they make? Are they going to make that? They're going to make that much money off of, of the games in Mexico? Give me another reason why they haven't done it. Then that's the only answer I can come up with because it continues to happen. So they can talk about it all they want, but it's not changing the behavior, and so it's not changing the problem. And so all they're doing is saying words right now. And when all you're doing is saying words, nobody believes your words. It's just not something that is believable. The, the, the game last night, though, you had that chant going on, but then at the same time, you had the news of the U.S. soccer team bringing back Greg Berhalter as the coach, breaking right at the start of the game, where people are all trying to talk about it. The halftime show was all about what the reaction was to having Berhalter be brought back after, by the way, you had an investigation. You hired a search agency to find a new coach who would be the right person to lead the team. Now you decide that he's the guy. So, look, I'm not, I don't claim to be the soccer expert in the world, but I don't understand what the US was doing with the process they took. And I told you a little bit, sort of at halftime, 
there was some criticism that was leveled. You, you had Clint Dempsey saying the soccer federation hurt the men's national team delaying the decision because nobody knows when Burhalter will actually start coaching. So he didn't coach in the nation's league games. He didn't coach the Mexico game last night. He's not going to coach Sunday night when they play Canada in the final. So they, they won't be able to put his style in play. So they're leading up to 2026 without having their actual tactician there running the game. So I just don't know what this soccer team is doing right now, but they're the host. I, I, I just, I look, I just, I just don't get it. I don't get what goes on with U.S. soccer, with world soccer, with the politics of it. It, it really is just a continued mess. And at some point, there needs to be stances that we just had a World Cup in a place that was that, that had constant surveillance and oppression. And just ridiculousness. And now we're going to have a World Cup where one of the three host countries routinely has chants of homophobic slurs. How do we allow that time after time after time? Does FIFA have any ability to control things in such a way to just make sure there's civility? I don't know. Other than having an empty stadium game where you punish all the fans, how do you stop the chance if you're not going to throw the people out? I, I just, I don't know what the solution is to it. Jeff, why don't we head to break? We're going to try and connect with the Toronto station. We'll see if we can work out some of the tech issues. We'll head to break, go to commercial, and we'll come back. We'll keep talking and see what we can do. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, while we wait to try to figure out if we can connect with Justin Cuthbert at uh, 590 The Fan in Toronto to talk a little bit about Nick Nurse and some other stuff, let's talk Phillies a little bit before we get to The other co-host country. The other co-host country. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, you know, Canadian manager, Rob Dobson, just a little smooth transition while we worked out. Technology. Well done. Very the well done. are now 35 and 34 and have a winning record for the first time since May 13th. They've won 10 of 12. Uh, their offense in the, in that stretch is averaging just shy of six runs a game. Uh, the rotation is two Oh six. Talk to me about what you're seeing on the baseball field with the Philadelphia Phillies right now something that I cannot explain. It's really that simple. I have been complaining to you all season that Kyle Schwarber should not be at the top of the lineup. And some and, and as his his batting average dips into the 160s, Rob Thompson decides I think we should move him to the top of the lineup, which by all accounts should not work and somehow it's worked. All right, we'll, we'll get back to the Phillies in a second. Let's bring on Justin Cuthbert, Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto. Justin, how are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, we're fantastic. We're just you know talking about a fellow Canadian manager here we have in Rob Thompson. Uh, but we wanted to bring you on to talk about another coach that we're getting here, somebody that you're extremely familiar with, uh, Nick Nurse, who you had up there for years. What should our fans expect to get from Nick Nurse as a coach? And please only tell us good things. Yeah, none of the uh, bad stuff. Just, just the happy talk. Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, uh, the position that you guys are in, uh, there's not much bad to share, to be honest. I think Nick Nurse's failure, if you want to call it that, with the 
Toronto Raptors was largely associated with being involved with a team that wasn't ready to win. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the 76ers should be ready to win. And, you know, there might have to be some, some additions. It might have to be remodeled a little bit in terms of roster, what he likes. Uh, but he's the type of guy that doesn't really have that, like, developmental switch. He's the guy that wants to push and push and push. And for that reason, we saw really short rotations. We saw guys fail to develop under his watch. We saw a lot of, you know, maybe not coaching towards the situation. But what Nick Nurse does well is coach towards a championship situation. And that should be the priority. So putting your best foot forward, that's a guy, that's something that Nick Nurse does really, really well. And uh, I think the expectation should be that he has – a pretty good, uh, lots of success and a good tenure in Philly. Okay, Justin, you just made me nervous though. See, so so one of the things that we had a, an issue with, if anything, with Doc Rivers was was whether or not he could develop young talent, including Tyrese Maxey. And so Nurse is coming in here, and let's assume Harden doesn't stay. There's going to be some necessary development of younger players from Springer to Maxey, who he has talked about and how he wants to develop him. And this is a guy who came from the G League. What was the issue as far as what you would see up there as far as him not being able to develop young talent? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily, hey, you know, uh, this this player doesn't get from point A to point B because he's an inhibiting factor. It's he has trust in only certain players. And that might be an issue, but like Maxi is a finished, not a finished product, but definitely someone who has the trust or should have the trust of any NBA coach to at least be a big part of what they're doing. I think the really big issue, and it's part roster constructed too with the Raptors. I mean, they had no guard depth whatsoever, but they did have a guard in Malachi Flynn on the roster and Nick Nurse just refused to use him because he didn't find him useful to him. So I think Nick Nurse had a difficult time transitioning from 2019 and the championship and being a little bit more open to, hey, taking a step back or using a lesser player because they really loaded up in 2019 and you couldn't keep that same basketball team on the floor. So am I expecting him to like take the, the, you know, the 12th guy and make him into a number 10? No, I don't think that's really Nick Nurse. I think what Nick Nurse does really well is take what's useful to him and put the best product out onto the floor. And that might mean a couple guys lose their spot in the depths of the rotation. But like in terms of like mishandling Maxi, I would not be necessarily concerned with that. But if there are a couple guys who maybe need to take a leap and they need playing time to take a leap, well, then maybe you get into trouble there. And that was one of my concerns with Doc is, is sort of not playing the young guys so much. Doc talked in the playoffs, though, about how the Sixers went back to playing hero ball. I, I had complaints about the offense that they ran the whole time that he was here. Jeff will tell you I regularly complained on the radio about it. What type of offense are we going to see Nick Nurse bring here to how he uses the pieces that he has on the team? Yeah, I think that might be one of the criticisms, too, of Nurse, because I've never thought that it was like overly, overly complex, overly thoughtful. I mean, I think he relies on his guys, even in like pretty specific roles like Pascal Siakam. It kind of devolved into something that just worked around him. He really challenged Scotty Barnes to be maybe more than he could be. And I think he, like, you know, he, he didn't have an abundance of shooters. I mean, let's be honest, the best three-point shooter for the Raptors this past season was Fred Van Vliet, and he took a step back. But he just didn't have all the tools that he needed, and I think for that reason he may have relied on his top guy and, and top guys a little bit more than he should. But when we saw a, a, a legit team, a legit championship team, four years ago in 2019 where he had a lot of pieces, it was a lot more sophisticated, or at least it seemed. And I think the trust issues sort of really got in the way of his success down the stretch. But 
it's kind of hard to be too critical of what we actually saw on the floor because I think personal issues and maybe the end being pretty obvious here in Toronto sort of disrupt what was happening at least in the final season. But I think I think Nick Nurse, when given pieces and when given some outstanding pieces uh, like you have with Joel Embiid in Philadelphia, I think he'll find a way to really, really utilize that. And I think he's going to have the tools he didn't, at least in Toronto, certainly in the, in the last couple of years of his tenure. I mean, just having some semblance of shooting, uh, it makes the situation a lot different than it was in Toronto. You know, one of the tools that's been at least noodled around here is the idea of potentially letting Harden go and somehow working out a deal so that Fred Van Vliet can come here and take his place. From what you saw of their time up there together, we've heard that they had a good relationship, a very good relationship. What, what have you heard about that relationship and how, could, how do you see Van Vliet fitting in with potentially Embiid and Maxi? Other than it being well, a very smart backcourt. <laughs> I, I think he would fit in wonderfully. Uh, it's kind of hard to parse out exactly what was happening because there was clearly some toxicity, some uh, some culture issues, some some problems within the team structure, whether it was coach and players, uh, player on player. There was definitely some issue, and it was hard to really figure out where Fred sort of, uh, you know, where he where he was and all that, whether he was kind of dealing with player-on-player drama or player-and-coach drama. But I think what we've learned since, you know, the last couple of weeks of the season into the offseason here, that Fred and Nick didn't really have an issue. And, in fact, the extension of the coaching staff, which we thought Fred was, was kind of more true than it was anything else. Uh, I, I think Fred would be an outstanding uh, addition. I'm actually kind of cheering for that myself because I want the Raptors to descend into a free, uh, full scorched-earth rebuild because I think that's the best thing for them to do. And, unfortunately, that doesn't include Fred, who's been – one of the better Raptors uh, of my time covering the team and watching the team. So I, I think Fred and Nick have a really good relationship. I think they can work extremely well together. I think what Nick Nurse wants to do, uh, if you have a guy like Fred around, can really uh, you know, help that sort of permeate through the entire roster because he knows Nick so well and has so, had so much success uh, with Nick Nurse. So I think Fred and Joel Embiid would, would form a really, really strong partnership, and Nick would be able to kind of get his message across and get through to the guys a little easier if he had a guy like Fred who really knows what the expectations are. Are you really asking for the Canadian version of the process? Yeah, be careful what you wish for, because now yeah. that the process is done <laughs> well, here, we're arguing about whether the process... Ben Simmons might be available if you want him to start your process with. <laughs> well, I'm just asking for process, right? Like, we, we there are... There are 30 teams in the NBA, and I think well, like maybe 27, 28 at least, we know exactly what they're trying to do. I, I don't have a clue what the Raptors are looking to do right now, whether they're, they're looking to really tear it down to the studs or convince themselves that they, they can actually com- compete. But uh, with their current roster, I mean, we're talking about maxed out in terms that we're going to have to pay into the luxury tax. Uh, we're not going to be able to keep every single free agent on this roster as it's currently constructed, and yet they were a team that finished outside uh, of the top eight and failed to get in through the play-in. So I just feel like they need to actually take action. They need to be decisive, and really they haven't shown that, and they have no signs of really wanting to do that. They want to keep their guys, and the guys that they have right now got them nowhere last season. Well, and then if we look at the flip side of the sports, you got the exact opposite going on in hockey, where we don't know what the Flyers are doing. It seems like they're going to tear it down now. The Leafs had a great season that ended too short for you. Uh, what are the Leafs going to do up there as we keep hearing rumors here that the Flyers may shop Carter Hart? 
Yeah, it's anyone's guess to really what the Leafs are, are, are planning to do. I mean, I think run it back is sort of what they're going for when it seemed like they couldn't. It was like, okay, so we've made one change. We got rid of Kyle Dubas. We got Bradshaw living in, and that's really good enough because uh, we got a good team and we have really no excuse to. And I think this is a lot of self-preservation happening in Toronto right now. Presidents, ownership, players, everyone kind of wants just to protect themselves. And if you do the one move, which they've done here with, with Kyle Dubas, although they never really wanted to make that move, I think they can tell themselves, hey, it can be a little bit different if we have a different mind and we have different uh, leadership here um, guiding the ship. So I don't expect much to change from them. Clearly, they have to add some players to the roster because they've got a ton of free agents. Um, But their direction is maybe not as decisive as it should be, at least in a backwards direction or to try and change things up. As for the Flyers, I mean, I I think it's pretty clear, like, Danny Breer is going to take his time here. And that's what you do if you're a new GM, because if you take your time, you can, you know, you can, you can be in that self-preservation vein where you don't have to uh, have that pressure to win immediately. Although that seems to be omnipresent in Philadelphia, but he can take his time. He can trade away some picks. That's the easy stuff. Trading away Ivan Provorov, that's the easy stuff. What's hard is to be a good team and to get better immediately. And I think for that reason, uh, taking that simple, slow, methodical, tear-down approach. Probably the best for Briere in terms of longevity, but probably best for the Flyers overall. Is there something we can do or something you can give us if we do trade Carter Hart? Would that be an answer for the Maple Leafs to have that kind of goalie? Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, uh, the Maple Leafs have been gambling. It's basically been lottery tickets with the goaltending position the last couple of years, and it hasn't necessarily worked out for them. I mean, if you're talking about continuing to gamble, I mean, I think Carter Hart is a decent gamble. I think it's a better gamble than Matt Murray. I think it's a better gamble than Peter Morazic. I think it's a decent gamble, but they've got to be sure. And Scratch a living in his time in Calgary, he was dealing with, you know, the bugaboo that was trying to find uh, quality goaltending, just like it has been in Toronto. And I feel like they need and they will search for something that's more concrete, something that's more dependable. And while I still believe Carter Hart, who's supposed to be the guy carrying the torch for Canada in terms of international play, can still be that guy, and I think a change in scenery will help him, I just don't know if you can continue gambling on that position if you're the Maple Leafs, even if it might be difficult to get a sure thing in there with the cap situation that they have. All right, i got to ask you about one more contact sport. So we go from hockey to golf. What is it about golf in Canada that you're tackling your stars? Uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, our security is a little overzealous. I think that's that's all that's all you can uh, really point to. Uh, it was a hilarious moment. I mean, it was a big, big moment in Canadian sports. 69 years uh, between Canadians winning the Canadian Open. And it seems like extra Canadian that something silly like that happened because whenever Canadians do something, it seems to be a little bit self-effacing and a guy getting tackled in the middle of the green during a huge championship celebration for Nick Taylor just seems right on the nose. I love the 72 foot putt, the longest one in the past 20 years to win it. That made it for me. But the tackle and the celebration was beautiful. Look, we can't thank you enough for joining us on the show to help break it down. We hope we get to talk to you again when our sports paths cross a little bit. Justin, thanks so much for giving us a little time today. Yeah, it was fun, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. And let's do this again. Sounds good. Jeff, your your comfort level after hearing Justin talk about Nick Nurse. I, our listeners can't see our faces. Well, I, I'm a, when you started I, to talk, your jaw dropped. 
because I was picturing your heart dropping. Like <laughs> all you have complained about for for a couple of years now is that it, it, is that the young players aren't getting developed. I mean, I'm not sure that there was that many young players here that were could have been developed. I, I I don't blame Doc, but you do. I do. And so so to hear that that Nick Nurse, who you would think that was the one thing I wasn't expecting to hear. Oh. Because Nick Nurse came from the G League. That's that's where he got his first success with Maury when he was in, in the G League with the Rockets. And so he goes to Houston. And, I mean, not to Houston, to Toronto. And that was a relatively young team, except for Kawhi Leonard. And, and I thought that they were developed pretty well. But it sounds like that's not what he either wants or, or is interested in doing or is his strength based on someone who's watched him every game. And so I do see, unless Harden comes back, which I don't want, but if Harden doesn't come back, a two-year deal? You, would, would I, take, that, I wouldn't take Harden at all. I, I, I don't wanna, want him. I, wanna, I don't want any part of James Harden. I don't, I don't want any more of his antics. The second something goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. And the second something goes wrong, he acts like a little baby. I mean, like, how many times do you need to see this? James Harden wanted out of Houston, the place he supposedly covets going back to. And what did he do? He didn't, just, he didn't just say, hey, I want to go out and I'm going to bust my butt until you work out a trade. What he did was started eating a lot, apparently, put on, put on the Harden fat suit, and then also was going out to nightclubs. That, he basically, you know, wind his way out of town. He gets what he wants. He goes to Brooklyn. It doesn't work out the way he wants. And so what does he do? He, he demands that he leave. And then he goes to the Sixers. And then he doesn't get it when he wants. When, I, I mean, I could go on with this. The, the fact is, James Harden is not a good guy. Okay. So let's okay? say that they don't have Harden here. What direction do you want to go? Because this is, I can't stand this time of year. Van, Van Vliet. Okay. So you want Van Fleet because yes. I keep hearing people say, well, Bradley Beal has the chance to explore things, but then you're locking yourself into $50 million a year over four years for a guy who's going to be in that aging bucket too. So does we Brad, but does Bradley Beal fit next to Maxi or are you giving up Maxi? And, and I'm not ready to give up on Maxi yet. I like what I've heard from Nick nurse. So what you need is, is you need a running mate in the backcourt who can be a more traditional point guard. Or and you need somebody who could potentially play power forward, and the hope is that they will have are spending this summer getting Paul Reed in a position that maybe he can be a power forward. That's what you have it to hope for. Playing. There's only so much you can do because you're over the cap. Yeah. So so the hope is if you get Van Vliet here, he knows what Nick okay. the offense that Nick Nurse wants to run. Jeff, I know you follow Keith on Twitter. Yeah. That Jaden Springer hit 120 of 121 three points. Uh, you, you know, this is your favorite time I, of year where there's I, workout video. How many how many times did we also hear that Ben Simmons, ben Simmons was was making tons of free throws and then when he actually got in the game he couldn't hit one? Okay, I, I, I just, I'll believe that when I see it. I'm not saying it's not true. I, I'm sure it is, but there is a big difference between standing behind the line without in non non game conditions and actually being in a game with people in your face, having to fight off picks, it's a whole different thing. I despise this time of year, other than the fact that I get to bring it up to see how upset you get What's over that? the fact that we are watching videos of people shooting jump shots in the gym with nobody paying attention. You know who's not going to be shooting jump shots in the gym, at least with his team for a little bit? Ben Simmons? John Morant. Oh. 
25 game suspension for his second gun incident puts out an apology again says he has to do better surprise the nba players association says it was a sex excessive the punishment Jeff, which means what so what are they going to challenge it it's okay, not good excessive. luck, good it, luck. Should, it should yeah. have been more frankly okay it's it's enough already how, how much like he did the same thing last time. He's got well, here's the here's the problem. Look, the, the gut reaction is it should have been a whole season. Okay, that that's people on that side. But as, as I've been reminded by people today, he didn't do anything illegal. He was in a state supposedly where it's okay to carry a firearm. He didn't shoot anybody, he held it. I'm not saying it's and my response to that was you play for an, a, a company. You play for a private enterprise that this is not okay for. A company so, that he told would not, he would not display the behavior he displayed that led exactly. to the Exactly. To me, that's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is he was either, he either lied or he's just not capable of controlling this impulse and that it could lead to something much worse. But the fact is like, I keep hearing people say, well, not only should he be suspended, he shouldn't be around the team, which apparently he's going to be allowed to be around the team. I don't think that helps. Being around the team or not being around the team? Not being around the team. I know, because because wouldn't you rather him be around better influences yes. as opposed to the influences would, that he keeps being around when he's not around the team? I would rather him be teased by the fact that all of his friends get to play on the basketball court and he doesn't, just like a little kid. Honestly, I'd rather him be there for everything except for the celebrity of the game. And realize the longer punishment. Well, if that if that matters to him, but but that's only if it matters to him. By all accounts, he does love to play basketball. But look, there are other players. Again, I'll bring up Ben Simmons, who have seemed perfectly okay sitting on the sidelines with their teammates and not playing. So he is going to make a lot of money once he is back. But there there are things that people need to realize that there may be more to this. Like there may be mental illness conditions. You don't know. So you do want him to get help and you do want to make sure that this doesn't end tragically because it does seem that it was going in a bad, bad direction. Like yeah. when Adam Silver says, look, Adam Silver is, seems to like the most level-headed person. He's extremely thoughtful in everything that he does. And if, if he's going to come down on you like this, you know, this is, this is strike two. If this happens to him in any capacity again, He's done. They the 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 players association can fight all they want. My guess is if this happens again, there is no way that he's getting anything short of a lifetime suspension and he will have to reapply. And then the NBA players association can take it all the way up to the US Supreme Court if they want. Do you think the players association appeals it or do they let it go? I I think they might, but I think that Ja Morant if he handles this right, is going to say, hey, as I just said, I let people down. I need to work on this. I'm going to take those 25 games off. I'm going to do the right thing so that when I come back, this does not happen again. And I am going to be the positive influence and the role model that I should be when I'm out there. That's what I'm hoping happens. The Players Association can do this all they want. I don't think this is getting reversed. And I think that Adam Silver is on such firm footing that he could do the 25 games because if he thought he was not on firm footing, he probably would have done 50 and with the idea that it would get negotiated down by an arbitrator to 25. So I think he knows exactly what he's doing here. 
All right. We got a couple minutes left on the show. Let's go back to our baseball talk a little bit. So Schwarber, you, you want to go to Schwarber again? So you were saying how you were wrong. Uh, Schwarber was in the 160s and moved up top. Now he's up to 176. Okay. But who could possibly have thought that would be right? Bob Thompson. You, you, ha- you have a guy that is slow as molasses. He's a horrible outfielder. Never was good even That's when he was thing. younger. That's the thing. They need, as much as I don't want to rush Bryce Harper back, they yeah. need to play first base just so Schwarber can sit down every once in a while. It is painful to watch him in the outfield. But it that, is that also a situation it's also painful yesterday. to watch him bat. That, that no, well, we, but he's still hitting some home runs. If the fielding is much more painful than the hitting, he's going to be in the lineup. He's Dave Kingman. Yeah. I know you've, you've said that. But although yeah, Dave Kingman at least batted in the 200s. But yesterday we saw something and you were texting me during the game with Aaron Nola, who right now appears unable to pitch out of the stretch. Yeah, that's that. Well, that's what I noticed. I mean, it, 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 he when he starts a game, he usually has a couple really good innings to start a game. And it's usually where nobody gets on base. And for some reason, and, and you pitch from the windup for the most part, when you are when you have nobody on base, he gets to the stretch. And for some reason, something happens to him that he immediately gives up a home run. He is one home run away from tying the Phillies all-time record for most consecutive games, giving up at least one home run. And his numbers reflect that. He's got batters against him have a 192 average when nobody's on base. When there's a runner on base, he has a 299 average. When there's a runner in scoring position, it's 313. It's not just that. It's his strikeout rate. He, he drops from a 26.6% strikeout rate with the bases empty to an 18% strikeout rate. It, it's, I don't know if it's the pitch clock or what it is, but he's clearly not comfortable. Meanwhile, you've got the other pitchers kind of figuring it out. Suarez deals. He's kind of in a groove. Mm-hmm. He's got a 1.35 ERA over his last four starts. They still don't have a fifth starter, though. Is Chris Sanchez going to get the call tomorrow in the game? That's the guess. Bailey faltered, faltered when he was <laughs> in the minors. So I, I don't I don't think he's the guy that's getting called up for this. So I, my guess is it's Chris Santa, Sanchez. You have Painter, who was, again, supposed to throw today about 25 to 30 pitches. So keep your fingers crossed that he's on the right path and doesn't have a setback. But you still desperately need a fifth pitcher. You need a fifth pitcher and a sixth pitcher, quite frankly, because at some point, as Wheeler has been apt to do in the last few years, he wears down and Nola has not looked great. He just hasn't. Now we no. usually expect this in an odd season, but I don't get what it is about that. By the way, the one other thing, if you watch the end of the Phillies game yesterday, Kimbrell constantly getting called three low. of them three times. Now it was great that he's such a veteran that it didn't phase him. But you have, I know the pitch clock is a little off to the side, but this was three times that he just, first, he, he immediately gets into position and then somehow just lets the clock wind down. And that could be a problem at some point. Yeah, and look, the, as the starting rotation's done better, it's been the bullpen since June 1st that's had a 527 ERA. Sir Anthony's looked better in the last game, but he struggled striking out fewer batters. Jose Alvarado's, you know, hadn't walked anybody in his first 14 outings since he's, he's had three walk batters and allowed. Give him, yeah. But give him back. time to, I'm not worried about him. Give him time to wind back into form. He's got, you know, he was out for a little bit. Just give him oh. some time. So it's getting hotter out. Bats are coming around. Castellanos is hitting. You feel good about the Phillies, Jeff. 
in our last minute. I here. feel okay about the Phillies. I mean, look, they're still not in the wild card position, so it's going to take some work, and they are going to have to get some pitching without giving up hitting. You think they can do that? Do they have the pieces uh, yeah, to do that? We got thirty seconds. Yes, but it, what it may require is giving up somebody like McCable, and I don't know if they want to do that. That concerns. I, I would, but but you that may be we'll, it. We'll talk more about that uh, next week and the week after. Everybody have a good Father's Day weekend. Be safe out there. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.